right, well, good morning. Those of you here at Fairhope, those of you joining us online over our Midtown campus, and then thankful, thankful for technology today. Uh, our team is actually watching. It's like 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon there, and so I want to give a shout-out to our team who's watching. Uh, grateful that you, in spite of all the activities you could be doing, you chose to be online. So we're grateful for that, just having a little fun. Uh, no, we... Uh, we, uh, we're, I'm, I'm really grateful to be holding the baton, uh, pinch hitting for week five of the seven series. Uh, I've enjoyed, I've learned so much just as I, I've been digging through this. And today we're actually taking a look at um, the Church of Thyatira. If you haven't been here, if you're a guest, if it's your first time, we've been going through the churches in, excuse me, the churches in Revelation that Jesus is speaking to. And they're both literal churches and figurative churches for us. This is kind of a map of all of the churches we have gone through and will be going through. We're looking at the Church of Thyatira again. It's all in chapter two uh, of the book of Revelation. You can look at it in the Bible, in your handout, um, and then, of course, all the text will be on the screen for you as well. But can we pull that back up real quick? The Church of Thyatira. Uh, so some things you need to know about the Thyatira. Thyatira was actually um, kind of a, a booming city. It was actually known for uh, the, the clothing or the cloths that they made. If you look um, I believe it's Acts chapter 15, if you've ever heard of the character in Scripture known as Lydia. It says Lydia was from the city of Thyatira, and there's a clause after that where she, uh, the city of Thyatira made purple goods. Purple goods would have been purple clothing, right? If you remember, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, they put a, a purple robe on him. That was to resemble royalty. So they didn't just make like the great value brand of clothing. They made good clothes, Right? Um, it was kind of a, a booming economy. Something else you need to know about Thyatira is it was a really, really small city. In fact, it was never really a threat, and it was really exposed to any neighboring uh, uh, country or city that wanted to kind of overthrow Thyatira. In fact, they went so far as to say that Thyatira relied on the surrounding cities of Pergamos and Sardis for their protection. It was sandwiched in this little ravine. You could almost say that the city of Thyatira was kind of like, I don't know, maybe our Thomasville campus, right? You can blink and drive through it and not realize it, right? It's really, really tiny. But in spite of the size of that city, it was important enough for God to put a church there, right? There was a lampstand, a church in the city of Thyatira. And we'll get to this in just a little bit. What you need to know about the church is though it was small, though it was like your grandma's church, right? I got nothing against small churches, right? Uh, if you don't like that comment, you can, what's the joke? Uh, you can email Zach at threecirclechurch.com. You know how it goes. Um, a small church, though it's small, it did not equate that it was ineffective, right? Small does not mean ineffective. In fact, it was one of the churches that Jesus commended highly. In fact, it got better and better as it continued on and on. So, Without further ado, let's get right into the text. You can follow along with me. Verse 18 says this. <clears throat> I love how the tone is set right out of the gate. It says to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God. You can underline that right there. The words, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Holy cow. Um, first thing for you, this is in your hand, and I want you to kind of think on this. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Like, think about it for a second. When you think about God, when you kind of try to imagine what he's like, most of us in here, we lean one way. We go, Jesus, luscious locks, right? Blue eyes, kind, loving, 
generous, all the, like the, the good, like warm, cozy Jesus. And then some of us, this is where I land, okay? I land on this side. Jesus, wrath, justice, strength, power, right? And there, here it is, ready? Here's the spectrum, right? This is the spectrum. Some of us view him as like this kind, like just comforting Jesus, and he is. Some of us tend to default to he's this powerful Jesus who can take on anyone. Like as a dude, as a little kid, I remember like, yes, I love Jesus. He's awesome. But here's the thing. He's both. He's both of those, right? Think about this, okay? If you were to try and describe Jesus, that's kind of a hard task. Like think about it for a second. How would you describe Jesus? If someone who did not know Jesus, right, outside of like sharing the gospel with them, how would you describe, well, he's I don't know, he's caring, uh, I mean, he's, he's full of love, compassion, he's also strong, right? He can raise the, I mean, there's so many descriptions about Jesus, right? It's, it's almost like any description we would throw at Jesus would kind of fall short of who he really is. And so I, the best way I can kind of articulate it for you is it's there in your hand out, is Jesus' name both commands and comforts at the same time. Think about that. Like the magnitude, the depth of the name of Jesus is absolutely incredible. Any description, any definition that you attempt to throw at Jesus is always gonna fall short. It might be good. It might make someone nod their head and go, oh, that makes sense, but it's still going to fall short because Jesus' name both commands and comforts. You can almost say his name is a stand-in for his character right? It's really hard to try and describe Jesus without coming up with some, some character traits, some attributes about him to where people go, goodness, like it, it is truly the most unique, the most powerful name that both commands and comforts. And I love, I think this is so cool how the, the story opens up with Jesus identifying himself as the son of God. I told you to underline that. If you've been here in weeks prior, Jesus identifies himself so uniquely to all of the churches in Revelation, right? If you were here uh, week two, Jesus says, I am I'm the keeper of the lampstands. I walk among them, right? Um, the week after that, I'm, I'm, I'm the one, excuse me, I'm the alpha and the omega, right? Like those, those descriptions, they, like they invoke woe and awe and wonder. And then last week, I'm the one who has the two-edged sword, right? The, the word of God is, is alive and living. And then this week, it's, I am the son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in church. So when I see the son of God, that's something that I tend to overlook. I go, yeah, that's, that's, that's who Jesus is. That's his rightful place in the Trinity. Jesus is the son of God. In fact, all of us go, yeah, we, okay, cool, yeah. It's Jesus, right? But it's so, so powerful that right out of the gate, Jesus is saying, hey, it's me. I'm the son of God. It's almost like, almost like he was implying something. If you look at this in scripture, like this, this letter in particular, though it's the smallest church, it's the longest letter. It's the longest letter to the smallest church. And Jesus, is, in fact, the, the subheading above this one is, is, is it's known as the corrupt church, right? So like already we're like, oh goodness, this is gonna be good, right? So Jesus coming out of the gates is saying, I and the son of God. It's almost like when my mom would get really, really mad at me and she didn't say my first name, she said my first, middle, and last name. 
And you were like, oh God, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like that's, that's what's happening. So I would imagine when Jesus is, is, is beginning this letter, I can just imagine if I'm in the church of Thyatira, my eyebrows are raised. You have my attention. Oh, snap, right? And, and look at this. Here it is again. Remember I told you like it's really difficult to describe Jesus. Eyes like a, like a flame of, of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The, like the description, eyes like a flame of fire. Like that's my mom when she's saying first, middle, and last name, right? That's the only time I've ever used that description. You don't use that to describe people, Right? You've never used that. <laughs> I hope not. I hope no one's ever described you that way. But eyes like a flame of fire, it, it, it implied that Jesus knew something about the church of Thyatira. Think about that. He has the ability to know all things. He can see all things. Like, think about this. People know what we do because of what they see. Jesus knows what we do because he knows all things. He knows thought and emotion and why. We, like, think about that. So this was a, let me expose you real quick. Let me show you, let me remind you who I am, right? And then he couples it with feet of burnished bronze. Burnished bronze would have resembled, this is not in your hand, it would have resembled strength and judgment. Let me remind you, I can see all things and I have the ability to squash you. It's me. Like Jesus was revealing his divine self, his deity, his divinity. If there were, at the church of Thyatira, a party going on, right? Who knows what was happening? It's almost like the cops just walked in the door and everyone just said, oh gosh, right? So the tone of this letter already right out of the gate is very, very tense. Check this out. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. Like when you, when you try and describe Jesus, that, to me, this one makes the most sense. Uh, there is no refuge in him, excuse me, my bad. <laughs> There's no refuge from him, only in him. Uh, I think about my, my little girl, Macy. Uh, she's three, all right? Girl loves chocolate because who doesn't love chocolate, right? And she has this nasty habit of lying. Three-year-old, all right? And she does this thing where she'll go in our kitchen and she'll go get the candy and she'll, like you can, I can be in another room and I can hear the stool sliding, right? Going all the way up to the counter, I can hear her fumbling through the glass jar, taking the lid off. Nothing is quiet, right? She's taking this lid off. I can see, I can hear the candy wrapper hustling, right? And then I can see the chocolate all over her mouth. Think about this, all right? Adorable. But Macy, here's how the conversation goes. Macy, baby, did you take some candy? And so she looks at me and she does this thing. That means Macy's lying. All right? And she looks at me and says, no. Dude, <laughs> it's the same thing, right? I'm walking in. I, I heard the stool. I heard the jar. I see the wrapper. I mean, it's still by the counter. The door's wide open. Did you take some candy? There's chocolate all over your mouth. Baby, did you? I want the truth. Uh-uh. I did not, right? Think of how silly. So it's almost like the theme here in this verse has been set. The church essentially has chocolate around their mouth and they've been caught. Something, something is hidden here. Else Jesus wouldn't identify himself as specifically the son of God. Let me remind you of eyes like a flame of fire and feet of burnished bronze. Let's check this out. 
<clears throat> says this. I love how he, he couples like this tone with uh, a compliment, like he's commending the church, right? He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So get this, like though the church was small, it was continually getting better and better. Like they're good at what they're doing. It almost reminds me of, of what I, I call, and you probably know this too, uh, a compliment sandwich. Ever got one of those? No? Uh, I, I always know when I'm getting a compliment sandwich from Pastor Chris. I've known him for like 100 years. He was in many ways like my youth pastor. And Chris, our staff, we, we, always, we always know when we're about to get something handed to us from Chris because he'll be like, hey, man, man, things are good. Things are good. Yeah, you know, fumbling around, just kind of surface-level conversation. Then he'll go, hey, um, he'll rub his hands together like this. I know our team's rolling because it's what he does. And uh, he'll rub his hands together, and he'll say this thing right here. Help me understand this. <clears throat> and that's when you know, oh, snap, I'm getting a compliment sandwich. Do you see you doing this good? Hey, this right here needs to be corrected, all right? And then it'll follow it up with, good job, by the way, right? That's, that's a compliment sandwich, right? This might be the earliest recorded compliment sandwich, right? So if you're taking notes, I want you to see this. There's this conjunction in, in Scripture, this big but. <laughs> it's awesome how uh, he, he shifts the tone of the letter right here. So verse 20 says this, all right? But I have this against you, that you tolerate. Everybody say tolerate. That woman Jezebel, whoo, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold means to take notice, means pay attention. I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches, here it is again, will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, deep breath. Like when you look at that, you go, oh my goodness. He's calling this, this woman Jezebel. Like how on, what on earth is going on at this church to give that type of description? Now, some more context for you. Inside the church in the city of Thyatira, you had these guilds, right? You had these groups, these unions. If you were in the church, or excuse me, the city of Thyatira, you were a part of one of these. You didn't live there and you weren't you were not a part of them. Everyone was in one of these unions or groups. Everyone had a role to play, right? So it didn't matter what type of fabric you made, what type you specialized in, everyone was in one of these. In fact, one of these unions had a lady. We don't know if it's a literal Jezebel because this book is full of symbolism. So we're going to say it's a figurative Jezebel, right? You don't know anyone named Jezebel, just like you don't know anyone named Judas. It was almost like Jesus was throwing shade before shade had ever been thrown, Right? So, so Jezebel, and then he says, that woman who calls herself a prophetess, <laughs> get this, like savage Jesus, he's not even acknowledging that she considers herself a prophetess. Hey, that woman, whew, that's intense, right? Who calls herself a prophetess. Think about this, all right? This woman was leading Christians, believers to not just sin. Yes, they did. But here's, here's how sneaky this is, all right? To be a Christian in this city was, was crazy difficult. So much pressure because you wanted, 
you wanted to worship your God, to be a part of your church, but you had a nine to five you had to go to. And inside those unions, you had this woman who was not saying, don't worship Jesus. Think about this, how, how sneaky this is. She wasn't saying, don't worship Jesus. In fact, quite the opposite. Hey, you, Christian, worship Jesus, but also worship my God. Work, stay, keep doing what you're doing. Keep being a part of that church, but also do, do my bidding. You can do, it's okay. You can do both. God, lo- like, you see how sneaky this is, right? So, so Jezebel, this figure, was leading believers astray. And the word I want to camp out on when I look at this is the word tolerate. I want you to underline that word tolerate. Because though sexual immorality, though it is, is wicked, it is toxic, it is sin, that's the byproduct of what the church missed out on. Like they, they, they missed to, to, to confront up front. Here's, here's what happens. And you can write this down in your handout. Cultural accommodation is the gateway to tolerating sin. Cultural accommodation is the gateway to tolerating sin. I tell our students in our student ministry all the time, I post it up. In fact, I posted it yesterday. It's prom weekend, right? And uh, every year, whether it's homecoming or prom, I put this on social media. And as I started to think about this, I realized this is a, a much more modern way of cultural accommodation is the gateway to sin. So I would, I would say this, and it's there in your handout. Don't trade what you want most for what you want in a moment. Don't trade what you want most for what you want in a moment. Now, I, I've gotten so much feedback on this statement alone. I've gotten so many people tell me, man, that is, that is good. That is, oh, that's good advice. That's good advice for a teenager. And I would agree with you. It is. I know it's good advice because I didn't come up with it, okay? I know it's good advice. I, I adhere to that. But here's, here's the thing I don't want us to miss as adults, what we do is we, we fall into this trap of going, oh, that's, that's good, almost like we're, we're patting someone on the head. Like, that's good, but it's not me, right? And though it, it, it applies to a teenager, it also applies to us as adults because we trade what we want most for what we want in a moment all the time. We're all guilty of this, right? Think about this great exchange that happens. Little things that we tolerate, little things that we allow in our life, though they can start out in very, very small things that can eventually lead to big things. Here's, a, here's an easy one, one I deal with, right? A battle that you have every morning you wake up, the comfort of your bed versus time spent with God. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm, I'm just being honest. That is a challenge. The comfort of my bed, oh, this is so nice. I'll read later in the afternoon, which never happens, right? I'll just, I'll, I'll spend time in prayer later because this is just so nice, right? It's that battle. That, oh my goodness, which one's gonna win, right? The trade-off. Here's another one. This is one that my wife and I deal with. You had a long day at work. Uh, you get home. It's seven o'clock. You gotta put the kids in bed. They're finally in bed. Uh, the tickle fights are over. All that, you're done. You're ready to exhale. You're ready to unwind. You're sitting on the couch, both of you, and you will trade off relational intimacy with time spent on a phone. Just real talk. This is, this is something that happens in my house, all right? It's a challenge because everyone wants most. If you're in a, a married relationship, you want relational intimacy. But so many times, so many times, I, I will tell you in one breath that I love my wife to death, and I do. 
But so many times, my phone takes the throne of my heart. Just being honest with you. Here's one for you. Guys in the room, you'll trade precious time with your family for a hobby that has absolutely no kingdom value. I'll be the first to say, I love the outdoors. I love hunting. I enjoy fishing. I love anything that has to do with outdoors. But, and, I'm, and I'm not slamming those things. I don't want you to hear that and go, man, I, I need to stop doing that. It's not what I'm saying. What I would invite you to do is to simply measure. Simply take inventory of how many times you do that thing versus how many times you spend or give, dedicate to your family. And I'm not talking about obligatory. Fine, I'll do this so I can go do that. That's the wrong motive anyway. God doesn't even want that. When's the last time you set aside time dedicated specifically for your family? You gave a weekend to that, right? It's a trade-off. Ladies and guys alike, I see this all the time, right? No one just randomly lands in a fair land. In fact, no one gets married saying, I hope this doesn't work out, (laughs) right? But it starts with an innocent, not thought through trade-off because you deeply want relational intimacy and so many times we will trade that for attention. And it'll sneak in like a message on Instagram or Facebook and you'll go, it's just a message. And what you're doing is exactly what the believers in the church of Thyatira did. They did not confront this. They didn't listen to that gut check, that conviction, that I don't know if I should do this. I mean, like scripture's clear on that, guys. My sheep, scripture says this, my sheep will know my voice. When you feel that, that, oh, is this, something's off about, like if you're a believer, that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. Respond to that, right? Don't trade relational intimacy for attention. Such a, such a terrible deal. Students in the room, I, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to you, right? This is, this is kind of the angle I take for all of my students. Man, you have such an amazing life in front of you. And I know it's so hard to see past Friday night. It's so hard to see past a weekend like what you just had and weekends that will come and go and those things are fleeting. And so what I would say to you is don't trade. Don't trade that fleeting moment of pleasure for a life that God has laid out for you, a life that is bigger than anything you can imagine. Think about that. This one hits home for me as well. If you're a grandparent in the room, an old guy, (laughs) I love, I love, I guess I can say that, I love old folks, kind of weird, I guess. Uh, But I have a granddad and I had a father-in-law that's no longer with me, made an absolutely massive impact in my life. I can't pick up the phone and call him anymore. I can't. I, I want to, but I cannot. And I'm telling you, the generational impact that I've received from those two and more. I I mean, we could sit here for hours and talk about the conversations and the wisdom that I've got as a father, as a friend, as a brother. I'm here to tell you, I I need you. We need you. If you're in the, the older age range, right, above 50 years old, I'm telling you, even in student ministry, like don't believe the lie that because I'm over this age, I'm ineffective to the next generation. It's actually quite the opposite. Statistically speaking, Students, middle school and high school, pay more attention. They're all ears to someone who has gray or white hair. Think about that. They tend to lean toward the oldest person in the room. It's true. And so what I would say to you, 
if you fall into that age range, just don't trade those those golden years of relaxation and retirement for generational impact that you could have. We need you. We want it. Parents of little kids, man, this one, this one hits home for me. I have a three-year-old and I have a four-year-old. I see this all too often. Like you had a weekend like this. I see you who are, are crisp. You're mildly sunburnt from a day spent at a ballpark. I have a four-year-old who he missed the cutoff date. Get this. He missed the cutoff date to play t-ball by 11 days, right? 11 days. And you go, oh, man, I bet he was so sad. He wasn't. He didn't care. He went playing with Legos. He didn't care. And it was, it was really eye-opening because, uh, I mean, I, I grew up playing baseball. I could not wait for Hudson, my little boy, to play baseball. I mean, it was going to be like just a movie, like me and my boy. I loved you, Dad. I love you too, son. I mean, it was just going to be awesome, right? And I missed this cutoff. I missed this cutoff. And I'll be honest, there's a big sigh of relief because here's how it works for me. All my friends who are, are in the ebbs and flows of T-ball, I mean, if you're there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I got nothing against it, but you know, like right now, it's a beautiful thing. Everybody took their opening day pictures, and you're running from ballpark to ballpark. Everyone's sunburned. It's just a good day, but give it two weeks. Hey, God forbid your kid makes all-stars and into fall ball. I mean, like it's a 10-month ordeal. And here's, it's almost like when I, before I had kids, everyone's like, oh, you're pregnant, just wait. Oh my goodness, just where your life's about to flip upside down, right? Which is true. But man, a lot of my friends have have been like, dude, it's cool. But, and I've heard in the same breath, (laughs) give it a month. Like, oh my gosh, dude, we just, we have no time. Oh my goodness, it's just, it's endless. It doesn't stop. And again, God forbid they get into all-star. I mean, it's like this endless carousel of practice to, to taxiing kids over here and, and picking up their friends. You know the drill. You know what I'm talking about. Here's my point. Here's my point. I realized when I got told no, I hadn't prayed about it. I hadn't prayed about should, should we do this as a family. Essentially what I and a lot of people do is they let the only, think of how dangerous this is, they let the only metric for committing their family, because that's what you're doing, it's not just t-ball, you know it's much more than that, committing your family to essentially a season of life, and the only metric driving that big, big decision, it is a big decision, is your child turning five. They turn five, all right, I guess it's time to, to switch up everything we do and go over here and we need to hang out with this group, people who don't share the same values with you. And I'm not saying you, you don't do that, but man, it's just, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting decision when that's the only thing. And so what I would say for parents of little kids and even beyond that, is that the only metric you're using for making a decision to commit your family to what you're entrusted with to a season of life? Just a question. And here's the other thing. Like I saw my four-year-old go, it's okay. He didn't care. Went back to playing Legos. Is Though I have a three and a four-year-old, your teenagers talk to me. And I've heard this point blank, I mean verbatim. I've heard a 17-year-old student tell me who is good and has college scholarship offers say this. I wish my dad would talk to me 
about something other than baseball. I just wonder, I just wonder if those things that we think our kids love, we love them more than they do. And so I, I don't want to fall into the trap, and I don't want you to either, is believing the lie, <laughs> believing the lie that because I'm a good assistant coach for my child, I'm also a good parent. You see how sneaky that is? Because I'm, I'm really good at chauffeuring my kid and, and, and their friends around from city to, t- to city to practice to practice, and, and man, we just we love, this is just who we are, and hey, don't get me wrong, I get it. Some people, that works, and you're doing a good job at being both. If that's the case, I'm not talking to you. I just know, because I see it, people who wrap their identity up in this, and I'm telling you, I don't believe, I'm not convinced that your kids like it as much as you do. So I just wonder if there are people playing sports, not because of their competency, but that are people playing sports that don't need to. Families who are committing to something that they don't need to, and they wonder, how on earth did we get to this point? How, do, how on earth did we get to this point where my wife and I are just constantly arguing because they were late to practice because she didn't pick them up because I forgot to do this? And I mean, it can be resolved with simply praying through it. Is this something my family should do? Is it something that you're tolerating, that you're gonna have to deal with later in life? Just a question. Verse 23, I love how he he kind of uh, wraps this up, kind of uh, linking back to the first statement. He says this, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your words. Again, this was a response, right? If you were in the church of Thyatira, you would have been thinking, all right, all right, we're good, right? Again, the church was actually doing better than it was when it first started. So think of how deceiving that would have been, right? They believed things were good. God can't see what's really going on behind closed doors. He can And he reminds them here, I just want you to know, I'm the son of God. Let me remind you of my divinity, my eyes that are like a flame, my feet that are like bronze. I am he who searches mind and heart. This was a response. This was a response to that woman Jezebel. He was defying her. I mean, this was a, uh, just a crazy mic drop moment for Jesus, right? Verse 24, he says this, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned that some call the deep things of Satan, the deep things of Satan. If you remember in the past, the other uh, uh, letters to these churches, one of them says this church actually had the throne of Satan. Like it's, it, it's, it's easy to go, what, what are the deep things of Satan? Ooh, that must be really, really bad, right? Because I know Satan does things, but like his deep things, ooh, that's even scarier. You know what are the deep things of Satan are? Well, the way you can find this out is just asking yourself, what are the deep things of, like work backwards, what are the deep things of God? Hmm, that's a, that's a hard, like deep things of God? Well, I don't know, because we throw things around that, that sound like this. I just want deeper teaching. I want, a, I want a deeper book to read, I want a deeper church. And I think after reading this, I, I've realized depth is not really a destination for you. Depth isn't somewhere I can arrive at. For me, depth is a byproduct of me committing to spending time in God's word, praying to God consistently, daily, and not giving up on it. And as a result of that, I have what is called a deep life, right? You know people who are like that. They have a, 
and they just have a, they have a real relationship with God. They have a deep, rich relationship with God. So here's, here's the thing. Those people, I don't really have to, I mean, it's just what they do. It's an overflow of who they are, right? And so you could almost say the deep things of Satan are when Satan doesn't really have to work on you anymore. You're neck deep in sin to the point to where it's second nature to you. It's almost like, I got you, moving on to the next victim, right? So this church was participating in the deep things of Satan. He says to you, if you're not, uh, excuse me, you've learned the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots and are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear. Underline that word, hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, each one of these letters is concluded the same way. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it reminds me of a verse that I love. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not just hearers. Deceiving yourselves. The, the temptation is to go, all right, it's good advice. I got it, right? And to nod your head, even literally or figuratively, to go, yes, I understand it. But the thing I don't want you to miss here is that we're to be doers. There should be action that follows this. So for us as, as a response, like we use that word weekly, right? The way we conclude a worship service when the band comes out and someone, someone comes out and they play a song and you go, okay, that's the response time. But I don't know if we, we fully understand what it means to have a response. A response is a game plan. It's a strategy. What you'll do different. What you'll look at and go, hmm, as a result of that, I need, to, I need to shift some things up. This is what should be different in my life. Like you're, you're literally writing that out. And here's what I would ask you if you're stepping in or leaning into a response. The first thing, you can write this down if it's not in your handout, is does the name of Jesus command or comfort you? What's your default? Maybe off to the side right there, write one to two things of like what comes to mind when you think about Jesus. Is it that, that, that cop, that police officer, judge, that person who's just sitting there with his arms crossed, tapping a foot, that is not true, right? Or maybe it is like the, the Jesus that you love. He's so caring and generous and, and, and loving. Like, is that the one that you think of? And, and let me remind you too, verse 28 says this too. If you're in the spot of going, man, how do I, I'm, I'm here, I'm hearing you, TC. I need to, to shift things up. I need to realign, refocus my life. I, I see this, like the reward you get, you respond is the morning star, that's Jesus. You get your, your true north, what, you're, what was supposed to be your true north all along. And so, does the, does the name of Jesus command or comfort you? And if you're answering that question, the next one will be this. What are you tolerating in your life and who knows about it? What are you tolerating in your life and who knows about it? That one's a bit more invasive, a bit more challenging, right? My prayer for you is that this would, would not just land here, but here. That you would really hear this and it would lead you to 
action, and you would have an opportunity to respond. Jesus, I thank you so much for your word that it is life-giving. It gives us direction in all that we are to do. God, that it, it moves us. Your, your word says uh, your kindness is the thing that actually brings us to repentance. Not, not your wrath, not your fury, your kindness, your goodness. So Jesus, I, I pray um, as we think on these things, all the things that we think of when we think of you, that those things would permeate our heart and move us to a response. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.